Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we're your hosts, Etienne and Dimitri. Um, this week, we're super excited to share with you an interview with uh, David Wolf from Wakelands Farm in the east of England. Dimitri and I were super excited to have this interview because he's managing a 25-year-old agroforestry system. And for us, it's a great opportunity to see what that looks like. You know, we're often talking about young systems and there's so much innovation going on, but there we get an opportunity to understand what it means to work among 25-year-old trees and the issues that might um, raise in terms of management. So we're able to go into some detail with him on machinery uh, and different management techniques. Yeah, Etienne, I think it's super important um, to have this conversation with more mature systems because, you know, when we're designing and implementing systems um, now, we're having an influence and we're making decisions that are going to last 20, 25, 30 or even 40 years in these agroforest systems. And, you know, you want you need to get it all right at this point. So the conversation with David uh, really helps us uh, gain some visibility uh, on that front. And the other thing I thought was really interesting is um, he he explains to us how he's transitioning this farm from basically um, a research farm, which was the initial project his uh, parents created, and that now he's taking that towards um, uh, a farm with uh, more diversified income streams and different enterprises. For sure. And all of the natural capital um, that was planted by his parents 25 years ago, uh, that's enabling him now to build a huge diversity, as you said, of enterprises, you know, from agro-tourism to on-farm restaurants, market gardens, grain production, uh, biomass production, um, you know, um, and, and, and lots of other things. So it's incredible how, how this, um, this tree and natural capital has, uh, this wood natural capital has, is enabling him to build a business. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, maybe we can start today um, with a bit of an overview of who you are and uh, how the farm got started. Okay, so my name is uh, David Wolf. Um, uh, my parents, Anne and Martin Wolf, um, uh, lived in East Anglia, lived in Cambridge, and I grew up in Cambridge. Um, my, uh, they went to live in Switzerland uh, for the last part of my father's working life. Uh, and while they were there, they decided to embark on a retirement project when they, uh, he came back and he would be 60. Uh, and they decided to set up what became Wakelands. So in 1992, they bought the land. Um, in 1994, they planted the first trees. Uh, and from 1994 onwards, they then ran uh, Wakelands Organic Agroforestry, which was a very pioneering, innovative, uh, diverse agroforestry system uh, in the UK and across Europe. Um, they, uh, my mum died in 2016 uh, and my father died last year, 2019, and my brother and I and our families have now taken over. So that's how I come to be uh, looking after Wakelands at the moment. And how did um, your father and your mother first turn uh, to agroforestry? How did they come across it? Um, so uh, my father's working life, he'd worked uh, mostly for the government as an agricultural scientist. He was a plant pathologist. Um, he had always been interested in uh, different ways of growing crops. Uh, he was particularly interested in growing different sorts of crops together. So I think when he came across agroforestry while he was still uh, in his sort of first job, um, uh, it stuck in his mind as something he would like to try. Um, but it, at that point, it was too innovative. It was too cutting edge for the sort of government funded research and so on. So it had to wait until he had his own uh, retirement project, his own retirement piece of land to really give it a go. And maybe you can give us a bit of a sense of um, the size of the farm and a bit of your climate and local context. Uh, so uh, Wakelands is in Suffolk in East Anglia within England, within the UK. Um, East Anglia is um, possibly the most uh, sort of substantial uh, uh, arable agricultural area in the UK. It's very flat, it's got a relatively good climate. 
uh, it's got good soils. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, cereal crops, um, sugar beet and so on grown in East Anglia. The Wakeland sits within that. And um, when Anne and Martin bought it, um, it was a, a farmhouse with some meadows and a farmyard. Um, they then bought two further fields. Um, those fields at the time were just in a traditional um, sort of modern uh, chemical supported uh, uh, agriculture system. Uh, and so they then ended up with a total area of about 26 hectares. Um, so it, it's no, uh, not an exaggeration, I think, to say that Wakelands is now literally an, an oasis in the middle of the East Anglian sort of pra uh, farming prairie. Um, and if you see a, uh, an aerial photograph, we've got an aerial photograph on our website, for example. If you look at an aerial photograph, you really see that very distinctly. That's something with Dimitri that we, we really, I mean, we, we talked a lot about it because when we first uh, found your farm and when we were contacting you, like the images are absolutely spectacular. So I'd recommend anyone going to see these beautiful, um, in some cases, 25-year-old trees. So you mentioned kind of the past and how your, your uh, father um, and your mother set up the project and where they were coming from with that. But now that you've taken over, what does the farm look like today? Um, are you selling some produce? And if so, who, who are your customers? And So um, my uh, parents were um, most particularly... Uh, concentrated on a sort of research approach to things. So my dad in particular was very interested in growing things in, in very small areas to do comparisons. So if you'd come here when he was really uh, at his sort of busiest, you'd have seen a patchwork of tiny areas of different crops growing alongside each other, different combinations of things, because he was very much still doing it as a scientific research project. Um, and indeed, he had collaborators based here from the Organic Research Centre for some years uh, working with him. So there was a lot of sort of serious agricultural science done here uh, over those years. Um, uh, we, my brother and our families, we're not uh, agricultural scientists, um, so we're not in a position to carry on with that hardcore science. Um, but what we are doing is carrying on with the organic rotation agroforestry. So the tree lines are still very much there and we're looking after the tree lines um, and then the, the uh, crop alleys in between. Again, we're, we're farming those with a, a variety of different things. So. Um, the, the next phase really looks like Wakelands as not so much uh, a research centre, but more of a demonstration site. Um, it, it's uh, possibly not big enough to be sort of seriously commercial uh, in scale, but um, we're absolutely going to make a go of it running as an organic agroforestry site, but with other things going on on the site. And that's really the important thing for us, because we are very interested in not just the, the sort of technical science and uh, agronomy of the growing of the crops. We're interested in what happens to the produce afterwards and the people being involved and so on so we, we, we are looking at um, getting people onto the site to enjoy it to work with the fields to appreciate uh, where the food comes from uh, and perhaps most importantly to then process the food so we're looking to set up on site a bakery and cooking facilities um, accommodation for people to come and stay um, and we're doing a lot for example with social media to connect people um, with the way in which their food is grown I think we think the time is absolutely right people are interested in how their food is grown and where it's grown um, and so we're making collaborations with people and and bringing people and organizations to the site who want to run courses who want to uh, get involved um, so that it becomes as i say very much of a demonstration site and not just a, a, a sort of behind the scenes growing site we'll definitely come back to to that because we're very interested to understand um, that transition from a strategic level but maybe before we go into more detail Um, maybe you could give us an overview of the different systems you have on the farm and then we'll, we'll kind of dig in deeper to, to maybe the most relevant ones. But I think it's useful for everyone to, to see a bit of the diversity of what you do. Um, okay, so um, Wakelands is uh, about a total area of about 26 hectares, uh, so 56 acres. Um, if you ignore the, the sort of farmhouse area and a couple of meadows, um, the rest of it is divided into alleys. The alleys all run north-south. Um, they vary in width between about 12 meters and about 18 meters. Um, and each alley is separated then by a belt of trees. Um, there are, so that's the, that's the sort of organic, that's, that's the agroforestry structure. Um, the, broadly speaking, four different areas within Wakelands. Um, uh, one area, uh, the tree lines are all uh, hazel, hazel trees, hazel wood. And they're, they're coppiced on a roughly seven-year cycle. Uh, each alley coppiced in a different year. 
So that produces a lot of wood for um, fencing and other construction purposes. Uh, and then the remainder of that is used is chipped for biomass. And then we have a second area, which is uh, willow, again, coppice, this time on a three-year cycle, again, used for fencing and hedging and so on. And then the remainder chipped for biomass for a boiler. Um, and then we have the two probably more interesting areas, one of which uh, is the oldest area planted in 1994, which are essentially semi-hardwood timber trees. Uh, um, although there's also some uh, things like cherries in there, which can be both fruiting and, uh, and a timber crop. So they are now um, more than 25 years old and quite substantial trees. Uh, and then we have the, the last area. They're all roughly the same area in, in size. The last area, uh, the tree alleys are um, a complete mixture of uh, fruit and other trees. So we've got in excess of 50 different sorts of apple tree, uh, pears, uh, lots of different sorts of plums, cherries, um, uh, apricots, figs, um, uh, a whole range of different things growing in those tree lines so that we have the combination of um, productive alleys where we grow uh, wheat, uh, lentils, squash, oats, other similar sorts of crops, um, and then the very productive tree lines which are producing um, a timber crop or a wood crop, but also um, a very variable food crop. So there's lots of different produce coming from the farm uh, in different ways and throughout the year. So, David, we wanted to um, um, go into some more depth in, in some of these systems that you've described now. For example, when you talk about the, the coppicing system, um, what, do, what are you growing in between uh, the, the, the coppicing lines? So, so um, broadly speaking, all, all of the uh, alleys between the tree lines um, are equivalent in terms of the different crops we grow in there. So... Um, those areas are divided um, for our sort of management purposes into 10 areas. And then we're um, running an organic rotation around those 10 mm. uh, areas on a roughly four year cycle. So um, at any one point, uh, any particular alley will be 50% of the time is going to be in a, a grass clover lay or similar. And then 50% of the time is going to be a, a, a crop. Um, those crops, as I say, the last couple of years, we've grown wheat, some barley, some oats, uh, uh, lentils, squash, uh, and so on. I think we're going to diversify a bit in the in the coming year, um, and, and really, it's just part of the organic rotation as to what gets grown in which alleys. So, any of those things could be grown in the in the hazel alleys, or in the willow alleys, or in the uh, fruit tree alleys. There's a little bit of a variation on that because um, the the oldest alleys, where the trees or the, where the trees are the oldest, and they're therefore the, the tallest. Um, also happen to be the narrowest ones. So, so they're the only ones where we have a bit of an issue with sunshine and daylight. So those alleys are not so good for, uh, for example, the lentils, which need a bit more sunshine. Um, but broadly speaking, we could be growing any of the things in any of the alleys in the system. So if you look at it long term, you'll just see those cycling round. You brought up a really interesting point here about how the, the interaction between the, the crops and the trees. And um, that's something that uh, we wanted to, to dig deeper in. Um, do you see that in different systems, uh, for example, I, I, the coppicing system compared to the, to the older uh, timber tree producing system, do you see different performances in the intercrop? Is there, is there um, differences uh, based on, for example, the light or... Yes, yeah, so I'm 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 not the scientist, so I'm not in a position to to sort of comment on the mechanics. But I, I do, for example, just this year, uh, we grew some lentils in a relatively open field situation, um, and some lentils uh, in um, the alleys between the the, the willow uh, coppicing, uh, and they uh, ripened uh, roughly two weeks apart, even though they were the same lentils planted at the same time. So um, we see quite distinct differences in that kind of way. Um, what the mechanisms for that are, um, I don't know, but but I, there's definitely variations depending on where we're growing it and, and in what conditions. So with the lentils here, did was there a difference in in quantity of of lentil being produced based on on the different uh, systems, or was it? That uh, That's same. interesting. We haven't, we haven't yet, we haven't yet done the calculations. Um, we've only just, in fact, the uh, the last batch of lentils were only harvested uh, yesterday afternoon. So uh, you'll have to come back to me on that one. I'm afraid. Okay, no, that's fine. And how are you managing the the trees in? If we if we zoom into the um, to the um, uh, timber production area, are you managing the trees in a certain way? Uh, for example, to, to to get light through better or to optimize the amount of timber produced. 
so um, most of those trees are now managed by being pollarded. So they're pollarded uh, mm. periodically at a height of about three, three, three and a half meters. Um, that's partly to stimulate uh, growth, but also the choice of pollarding rather than coppicing is at least in part because it means that the, the lower part of the tree is therefore narrower. And so it intrudes less into the cropping area so that the growth of the tree doesn't really start until uh, a height above the where you would have machinery and so on. Um, so that, that's been the broad approach to the managing of those trees. Um, uh, I think it's also fair to say that um, um, some of the trees, so for example, the cherry trees, um, haven't been possibly managed uh, as well as they might be, because I think uh, my uh, parents were never quite clear whether they wanted to maximise the the cherry crop or whether they wanted to maximize the timber crop and slightly we've ended up with a bit of a compromise um, and so this year for example we had some very big fantastic cherry trees with huge crops of cherries on them uh, but because the trees are so big we weren't able to pick anything like uh, well even only perhaps 25 percent of the crop because the trees are so big um, uh, so had they been managed for for fruit they'd have been managed differently over the years but it's now uh, probably too late but just a question about that then is uh, how would you manage for fruit production while keeping them low enough, you know, for harvest, but without impeding on the machinery? Yeah, I, th I think I think that's probably a challenge. Um, mm. So so so, uh, but I suspect you could you could keep them um, big enough to be out of the way of tractors and so on, and yet still small enough to be picked from ordinary ladders or ordinary uh, equipment. Whereas some of our trees now are um, 10, 15 meters tall, and so you'd need very specialist equipment to be picking the cherries in those trees. But those systems, so the mature cherry trees are distinct from the, the orchard. So I'm assuming that in the orchard, you, you've been um, managing, taking into account more production in that case. Uh, yes, I think it's, um, that maybe that sound, that's a, sounds a bit too um, uh, thought through. Um, <laughs> because actually the um well the orchard what you're calling the orchard trees and they're not they're not it's it's not an orchard in the sense it's not densely packed with trees it's it's fairly by orchard standards it's still very low density of fruit trees um okay. but those trees are much younger so the the issues about uh, size and height uh, are questions for the future really and talking about density um we mentioned the the interline but on a line what would be the typical spacing um between trees so they are. Uh, well, they started out being about eight to ten meters apart, um, but there's been uh, a fair amount of natural reseeding. So, for example, quite a lot of uh, self-seeded cherry trees uh, around the main cherry trees, uh, and then we've done a certain amount of infilling, um, uh, both with new trees, but also with things like um, uh, fruit, uh, currant bushes, and things like that. So um, uh, it's quite variable. So you felt the need to densify the, the lines then? Uh, why was that the case? Um, it's not so much uh, densify. Uh, it's more a question of taking advantage of the spaces because where we've got, where we've got uh, relatively young apple trees and, and cherry trees and so on, which are 8 to 10 metres apart, um, there are obvious gaps between them, which even if it's only for the short term, we can grow gooseberries or red currants or black currants or similar things or uh, rhubarb, uh, other, other interesting uh, fruit and uh, food to eat. Um, no, they may not. They may not uh, survive the long term when the trees grow up. But certainly for a few years, we can have other things in the system. And so, it um, in in this orchard, as you've let it densify, that's also let less light come in, right? So you've decided to make a compromise more in the direction of the fruit instead of the intercrop. I, th um, I think I think if you if you uh, the area we're talking about, the trees are still that much smaller, and the alleys mm -hmm. are slightly further apart anyway. So. We're not anywhere close yet to the, the kind of compromise that you're talking about. Um, the area where that compromise has started to happen is really only in the trees where there are timber trees um, that are, you know, 25, 26 years old. Um, we're at the point when we're at the point we're, we're getting to the point where we need to make decisions about the the fruit trees as to how we manage them going forward. But we're not, I don't think, at the point yet where they're causing any issues because the alleys in that area are um, probably 15, 16 meters wide. And the trees are still relatively small. So what, um, if you compare it to the more mature system, you'd say that it's around 25 years that you start to see a real compromise between the intercrop and the tree? Uh, I don't know when you'd say it started. Um, it's, it's, well, when you say it's, an in, it's, it's a compromise, it's only a compromise for some things. So it's a compromise, for example, if you wanted to grow lentils, but not necessarily if you wanted to grow other things. Um, 
I mean, I wouldn't want to say uh, when that started to happen. I'm just not in a position to say. But we're now at the point where we definitely have that uh, issue. You see what I mean? I think it's a, also a good issue to have. Yes, we're not com- we're not com- we're not complaining. We're not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I imagine that pollarding um, in the timber area that you that you mentioned earlier on must have a quite a big impact uh, on the dynamic ecological dynamic of the system in terms of the light and 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 also the winds. Right? Could you uh, maybe explain to us how that changed um, the management as well of the system? Um, yeah, so I guess I wasn't around when they first decided to do the pollarding. Um, uh, certainly the, sh- the shapes of the trees now are very distinctive uh, and uh, there's a lot of very solid growth, very high high up above the ground. Um, uh, uh, and then they're being maintained and some of them have been re-pollarded. Um, and then it really varies from uh, one type of tree to another quite what the effect of that is. Um, so I think that there's a lot of variability in the way that that's responded, which is partly a function of the fact that there's a lot of variability in the in the tree system in Wakelands, which is both a, is a both a, a sort of successful feature of the system, but also um, I'm sure leads to to um, a certain amount of, of uh, compromise and so on. I wanted to ask something uh, before because you know we've opened a really interesting door there on talking about diversity, but before I just wanted to ask. Um, you mentioned that it's a problem for growing lentils in those m- more mature systems. Does that mean that some other crops are more shade tolerant? And if so, which? Yeah, so, um, uh, so for example, next year we're planning on growing uh, a wheat crop in, in those alleys um, uh, um, because we're optimistic the wheat crop will be successful in a way that um, three or four years ago my uh, father grew a lentil crop and it, it struggled with the lack of sunshine. So. Um, we, we haven't done a sort of specific uh, scientific assessment of what we're, of, of, uh, of the issues, but we have a sort of practical experience that we're basing our decisions on. And the fact that you have, let's say, a transforming and, and mature system now, uh, does it make you consider sometimes, for example, moving away from arable crops and let's say including chickens or animals? Is that um, a kind of transition in the strategy or...? Um, so uh, we are looking at two things, I suppose, in that direction at the moment. Um, we are looking at uh, reintroducing uh, some intensive horticulture. I say reintroducing because um, my mother uh, and another woman did intensive horticulture in some of the alleys uh, for several years, uh, a few years ago. But then my mother became ill as she was older. So that that stopped. Um, but we are looking to reintroduce that in at least two alleys next year. Um, we're talking to two different groups of growers um, who will probably each take over an alley uh, in, in within what you're calling the orchard, although it's it's very low density. Um, uh, and they will each use slightly different systems to grow um, intensive horticulture, vegetables and so on. Um, one, one of them is operate is going to operate a, a no dig system uh, and the other is going to do a more conventional system. And we'll see how that all goes. So, so that's one area in which we're diversifying the, the nature of what we're growing and, and indeed the way we're growing it, because that will be their enterprises, sort of self-contained, their businesses. Um, we are absolutely looking at uh, or looking at interested in having some animals. Um, there have been chickens here before. Uh, we're less likely to go down that route, but we're very interested, for example, in trying some sheep. Um, we think it could be quite exciting to have some electric fencing that we can move around the farm that we can put around two or three alleys at a time and have uh, a small flock of sheep who graze on the uh, on the, the clover grass in the alleys and also but also on the grass that's in the tree lines um, and then we can move them around with the rotation the, the problem we've got with that is um, partly one of scale but also partly um, uh, our land is very wet clay so we wouldn't have any uh, any suitable winter pasture so we can only make that work really if we can collaborate with somebody else who has uh, uh, winter quarters for their sheep um, and is looking for uh, e- extra summer pasture. So, But if we can find that collaboration, then we'd be very interested in introducing some sheep into our system. I was going to say, I, I think that's a recurring theme because we had the exact but opposite problem in Greece where we really wanted sheep to manage the pasture in the winter, but then didn't have any appropriate pasture in the summer because of drought. So I feel like you know building these kind of uh, partnerships with um, local farmers is like the key to diversification and including animals in orchards. Go ahead, Dimitri. 
I was I was going to ask about the the scale. You mentioned now that you had a problem of 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 scale for the the for the sheep. Could you just elaborate on that a bit more? Um. So, so yes. Yeah, so what I mean by having a um a scale question on sheep is is um if we are rotating the sheep around within our system, uh, uh and also uh, our system is such that at any one time half the land roughly is uh, in crops and half the land is in is in um, an organic lay. Um, the actual area uh, we have for the sheep and the number of sheep we could have is probably quite a small number. So w whether that makes mm -hmm. for a viable flock of the kind which could produce, for example, enough milk to make uh, sheep's cheese um, is something we're looking at. Um, if, it, if it could, then great, we'll definitely have a go at that. Um, that's what I mean by scale. It's, it's whether we've got a big enough area allowing mm -hmm. for the rotation to, to have a sustainable flock. That makes sense. And continuing the i wanted to ask if there's a third option in in those areas especially looking at the timber trees which now are about 25 years um are you are you considering um harvesting them for wood and and restarting the system or maybe have you got a succession there already going on so um well the 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 willows and the hazels are already harvested for wood we have a um a good uh, uh wood crop um, so a lot of uh, hazel staves uh, we've sold last year, three and a half thousand. We've got a guy who wants 10,000 next year um, of hazel staves, which he uses as a fencing product. Um, in terms of the older trees, the timber trees, uh, we've had trees that have been felled because of disease or because of wind damage or whatever, uh, which have generated uh, a timber uh, a timber crop. Um, I don't think we've yet had any where there's been a planned uh, felling of a tree which has reached a maturity such that you're actually felling it for a timber crop um, in, an, in an elective way, um, that, that may well come. So we're not yet at the point where we're recycling or infilling for, for sort of planned reasons, but there's been a certain amount of, of that for, as I say, damage and, and disease uh, responses. And I just wanted to ask out of curiosity, um, uh, just maybe concluding the, the section on animals, um, I, I felt like a reluctance on your ha uh, behalf on chickens. Is that based on that past experience with chickens that didn't go so well? Or what, what is that based on? Um, what's it based on? That's a good question. Uh, I just suspect that a chicken enterprise takes a lot more uh, organization and oversight uh, than we're currently able to give. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility, but um, it's not in our, in our uh, wish list at the moment. It also seems to be the case that uh, you can consider putting in um, um, sheep because the the trees are already mature and yeah. they won't be causing damage, right? But otherwise, ch chickens would be a more interesting option. Sure. Well, yeah. So certainly, certainly. I mean, that is one of the advantages of having the old system is that uh, we can we can include the tree lines within the sheep area um, and be reasonably confident the sheep won't eat the trees. So that's that's um, a bonus of the age of the whole project. What's your in your experience with the different intercrops, not especially? What's the difference between a pollarding system and a coppicing system? How does that interact with what's happening in between the lines? Um, so where the uh, where the trees are coppiced, um, uh, obviously the new growth starts from the ground, and so they become very bushy at ground level, um, and so they tend to be that, that makes for a much wider tree alley. Um, where they've been pollarded, then obviously the new growth starts at the point at which you pollarded. So uh, you get a, uh, the growth is much higher and therefore away from machinery and so on. Um, so so the, the, the lines where we have uh, mature trees that have been pollarded, there's a lot of sort of undergrowth below them, um, brambles and grass and uh, small bushes and so on. Whereas the tree lines which have been coppiced, so the hazel and the, the willow, um, basically, they are solidly hazel or solidly willow um, down to ground level um, with less uh, other growth in, in and around the trees. So one system, the pollarding system reaches higher in, you know, it goes up higher and the pollarding system yeah. is more compact and lower. Yeah. So if you, if you look at the pollarding system, what you're basically looking at is trees. Whereas if you look at the coppicing system, it looks like hedges. It's, it's a quite a different visual appearance. Um, whereas with the coppicing system, you're getting a lot of growth close to the ground in a way that is then uh, good in subsequent years for um, uh, for mechanically harvesting uh, to get either uh, timber for uh, hedging and so on or timber for, for biomass chipping. 
And you you use a machine uh, to harvest uh, the 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 willow and the and the hazelnut hedges, right? Uh, yeah. So we've used different technologies uh, over the years. Um, uh, just in the last two years, two years ago, uh, we were using what is effectively a very large circular circular saw blade on uh, a hydraulic arm from a tractor. So almost like a, a giant sort of domestic uh, brush cutter. Um, and that was run along horizontally, let's say 30 centimeters above the ground. Um, so cut the crowns very close to ground. Um, the, the advantage of that was it was very quick um, because you could just run the machine along. The disadvantage was that the, uh, the, the, uh, what you then cut fell in every different direction. So there was then a, a, a processing operation to get them all lined up in order to handle them, stack them, move them and so on. Um, this last year, we used uh, a different system, which was a different machine, uh, which had um, an enormous hydraulic sort of hand, I suppose you'd call it, which uh, grabbed the, bun- the, uh, the willow or the hazelnut almost in, in bunches um, and held a bunch of, let's say, 30 or so stems at one time and then had a cutter that cut through the stems. And then the hydraulic arm was able to lay them on the ground neatly. So. The result of that was, although it was slower to do the cutting, it meant we had a, uh, a very neatly laid uh, line of cut timber that could then be handled and processed much more quickly. So different techniques have been applied with different uh, pros and cons. And taking into account um, the use of machinery and how practical it might be, um, do you have a preference between you know, uh, a coppiced or a pollarded system in terms of managing the whole? I'm thinking in terms of practicality, but I'm also thinking maybe in terms of the shaded producers. Well, certainly when it comes to the managing, um, I mean, our the trees that we're we're managing by pollarding are all larger, um, uh, sort of semi-hardwood timber trees, um, and the management of that, the pollarding, is all done by you know by chainsaws and ladders, um, and so it's essentially a pruning operation. Um, uh, and the material that comes off that is obviously very it's difficult to handle because it's very sort of um, random bits of branch. Whereas what's coming off the, the coppicing system, because we're coppicing and have been coppicing the same willow and hazel for many years, um, what's coming off there are you know, straight growths. They're, they're three, four, five meters long um, when we coppice them, and they are you know straight pieces of um, sort of uh, wood, let's say thirty centimeters in diameter, uh, thirty millimeters in diameter, um, that are you know optimized for uh, completely different uses. So really, they're different techniques for completely different things. But is, is it easier, for example, in a pollarded system to control the amount of shade produced? Yeah, I mean, so well, the pollarded trees, I mean, because you're only pollarding them at three meters above the ground, the growth then goes above three meters. So they're much bigger trees. So they're always going to create more, a lot more shade um, because you've started, you've only started the coppicing three meters from the ground. So they're going to be that much taller. Where, whereas the coppiced trees are coppiced you know, when they're cut, they're cut to, um, you know, 100 mil from the ground, let's say, not much more than that. So in the, in the, when, they're, when they're very short, they're really no shade at all. And even when they're at their longest, they're only three meters tall. So um, they're really quite different uh, uh, approaches for the, for the different uses. And so one of the things that comes out with, uh, um, with the way that you manage uh, the, the copy thing is that you need to get a tractor in. And so how does that, the, how does the management and the mechanization uh, interfere with the intercrop as well? Is it something, do, do you, can you only enter the space in the interline in certain specific times? Does it uh, mean that it limits the types of crops that you have to choose as well? Um, yes, I mean, certainly it, 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 it means you can only go at certain times, but... Um, uh, at any one point in the system, um, we have uh, um, you know, an organic lay uh, in half the land anyway. So, it, I mean, this year the organic lay was in half of the willow area and all of the hazel area. So access to that was easy because you can just drive on it when it's dry. Um, uh, obviously, it's a bit more of a challenge if you've got uh, a crop in the, um, in, in, the, in the lines between the, cop- the coppicing. Uh, as it happens this year, we were growing lentils in that area. So that was relatively straightforward because it was an organic lay over the winter. Um, and so we could do the coppicing during the winter and then the lentils were planted in, uh, in the spring. So that wasn't an issue. Um, if you were growing a winter wheat crop, 
um, then it would be a bit more of a challenge because you'd have you wouldn't be able to coppice in that in that winter in that area. So I think it's just a question of being a bit adaptable depending on what the, the crop choices are. Um, but but um, you know we are we are kind of coppicing some areas every year on different cycles so that we have a, a coppiced willow crop and a coppiced hazel crop every year. But at the same time, they're always um, regrowing uh, over time. And taking some of the you know similar question of how do you synchronize cycles, but applying it more to the orchard, I'm assuming um, at some point you have to go into the fruit trees and harvest their their fruits. Um, do you find that it's hard then not to have access maybe with uh, not being able to go into the interline and, and with a tractor or a machinery? Is that something that affects the harvest of fruits? Um, well, we're not really using machinery for the harvesting. The harvesting is all done by hand of the fruit. So... Uh, access isn't really a problem because you can always you can always walk along the edge of the fields. That's not a problem. Or the edge of the alleys. That's not a problem. And then you just use like wheelbarrows, maybe, or to go to. Yeah, the end of I the mean, line. I suppose just thinking thinking what we did this year. I mean, it's it's true that we had um, we we used a tractor and trailer to um, move people and cherries around when we we're doing cherry picking. That would have been more of a challenge if the alleys in question had been in the crop. But again, you, it's a, you know you have to think about that in terms of your what you're what you're planting and how you're then going to deal with it. So. Um, that's part of the fun. Yeah. <laughs> Could you maybe um, explain to us some of the of these kind of ecological benefits that you're seeing being provided by your systems? I'm thinking, for example, windbreaks. Naturally, if I, when I when I saw the photos of your coppicing system, I was just thinking, wow, those crops in between are so tucked in; they must be so protected from the wind. What happens when you cut, for example, the coppies? So in the first months of the spring, when you've got a crop there, but you've got low uh, coppicing systems, how do you manage that? Yeah. So again, I think you'd have to talk to the ORC people, the organic research center people, because I think they've done some work on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got the sort of long experience. I mean, the only thing I would say, just picking up the way you've described it there, is that um, when, when we, when we, because of the way we coppice on a cycle, so uh, in the willow, it's every uh, three years, and in the hazels, it's every seven. Um, but in the hazel rows, every row of, of hazel is actually a double row. Um, so you don't ever take out both the left and the right row, if, if you like, if you sort of mean, uh, in the same year. So certainly in the hazels, you, you never, you're never left with a, a, bare, a bare line. The worst you've got is, a, let's say, a five-year-old line and a, and a cut-to-the-ground line, but they're really adjacent to each other. In the willows, we do take out the whole row of trees, but it would never be more than, it would never be adjacent rows because of the cycle. So it's not as if you're suddenly opening up um, a huge area to the wind that wasn't opened up before. You're, of course, you're increasing the uh, exposure slightly, but it's still all within a very, um, uh, a very sheltered system overall. I guess what's interesting to us is that, um, you know, when you start an agroforestry project or when you read about agroforestry, there's a lot of principles and theoretical advantages, you know, and actually very few people are in a position to observe that from an experiential basis, uh, which is the case for you because the first trees were planted 25 years mm. ago. So without affirming anything scientifically, uh, I guess we just wanted to have your, your, um, your perception and maybe your experience of working in a system with mature agroforestry systems. Um, do you feel that in a sense um, it's delivering um, what everyone is aiming for? Okay, without taking scientific indicators maybe, but just in terms of biodiversity or you know mitigating climate extremes um so sure it's certainly it's certainly um uh giving us diversity i mean i suppose there's a a sort of a a simple anecdote uh based upon my father's experience from a few years ago uh when he was growing potatoes and he grew potatoes in three parallel alleys and the farmer next door grew potatoes in a field which is about 100 acres uh that's a bit more than 100 acres even 100 hectares, I'm sorry, it's a bit bigger than 100 hectares, but basically a vastly different scale. Um, and it was a particularly bad year of potato blight. Um, by, we lost one, just one alley of potatoes, essentially, uh, but the other two were largely uh, untouched because of the, uh, uh, the precisely the sheltering you're describing from the potato uh, blight spores, whereas the farmer next door essentially lost the whole field because once the blight was blowing across the field, it blew across the whole field. So you do see some fairly simple uh, and occasionally quite graphically illustrated effects like that. Of course. Um, but for example, do you think 
uh, the fact of, I know that some people would be afraid of including uh, trees because, you know, they, they would think it would increase, for example, maybe deers coming and causing damage to crops. Um, have, you know, including trees and having mature trees around your arable crops, does it you know, set certain challenges as well in that respect? Um, so that's an interesting question. So um, uh, I, I'm, I won't talk about it in terms of the, the, the crops, if I may, but just in terms of the fruit. So um, this year we had uh, a big cherry crop um, and uh, various people said, oh, aren't they being, I'm going to have a terrible problem with birds. Um, and what was interesting was that although we do have a lot of birds because of, we have a lot of trees, um, we didn't see any real evidence that the birds were eating the cherries. Um, it may be because we've got such a rich habitat, there's plenty else for them to eat. I just don't know. But um, uh, and again, with 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 deer, I mean, we do have deer here. We have wild deer here. We have wild hares here. Um, uh, and we don't see a great deal of evidence. We see a little bit of evidence of the, of the deer doing some uh, bark damage to some of the trees particularly the younger trees, but we don't see any great evidence of, of problems with um, uh, uh, the deer in that way. Um, the other thing that's an issue um, in terms of pests in this part of the country is, is pigeons, um, pigeons eating the cereal crops and so on. Um, and it's noticeable. I mean, we do have a couple of areas of the farm that are much are, are much more open and don't have trees in at all. And um, just visually, you could see that there'd be whole flocks of pigeons sometimes in those areas. And you might have thought we had a pigeon problem. Um, where we didn't see equivalent numbers of pigeons in the alleys where you had the intercropping growing or, you know, in between the tree lines. Now, I haven't done any um, you know, scientific basis for that, but simply observationally, um, uh, whether that's because the large flocks of pigeons don't want to land in the relatively narrow um, alleys between the trees or what, I just don't know. But, but I'm sure there are those kind of interactions going on. And I think one of the, just to add to, add to, all, add to all of that, I, mean, I, I talked earlier about the way in which uh, in the past there'd been collaborations between uh, the Organic Research Centre in the UK and, and the Wakelands Project. Um, we're um, back talking to the ORC um, about uh, further sort of future collaborations. And I, I think one of the things they're interested in is precisely looking at Wakelands as a, um, as a mature, relatively mature agroforestry system. So seeing if you can pinpoint some of those things. Um, and that's partly with the benefit of, of data that was collected in previous years around things like tree growth and so on. So there is a fair amount of data which could inform some longitudinal studies in that way. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we can, we can, um, there's still more to learn. That would make sense. And I'll, I'll add um, protection from uh, spores, which I actually had never thought about as an advantage for windbreaks. You know, we always think in terms of uh, wind damage and, and storms or uh, temperature, but that's also an interesting effect that we'd never thought about. So great. I wanted to ask in terms of diversity and, you know, you've already mentioned so many crops. Um, and now that you're kind of transforming the strategy and you're thinking of, um, of selling um, and, and, and diversifying even more by, I mean, uh, including, um, you know, intensive horticulture and all these elements, um, do you have a farm shop or how do you manage to, to accommodate that diversity? Um, so what we're doing at the moment is that we are, um, I suppose we're doing two things uh, in terms of the diversity. So expanding the range of activities on the site, um, as well as bringing in people to do the horticulture, that, as you've just described. Um, we are building a, a sort of bakery kitchen uh, on site. And we have a, um, a woman, a young woman called Henrietta Inman, who is a sort of celebrated and published baker come chef, who's uh, much to our pleasure basing herself here. So, so she is going to be working very closely with the people who are doing the growing to specify what we grow. And then she's going to be using the produce on the farm in her cooking. Um, and I suspect much of that cooking will be uh, directed towards um, people who are coming to the site for activities on site. And, and that brings me to the second thing that we're doing in terms of diversification, which is that we're um, converting the, the farmhouse uh, to be accommodation and we're building uh, what we call glamping pods. Um, which we will use in the organic in the in the, uh, the lay alleys um, as accommodation. So people can come here for whether it might be for holidays, but more likely for events, whether it's for uh, courses or meetings or whatever it may be. Uh, people coming to do things involving the, the site and so on. So we're we're in that latter regard. We we had a couple of organised tree walks just in the last couple of weeks, and we're now talking to various people who are uh, would like to run courses here next year in 2021. So. We're already talking to people who want to do courses in 
um, let me think. Uh, so uh, agroforestry, in permaculture, in sourdough making, in mead making, in willow weaving, uh, in landscape painting, um, and so on. The list goes on. So that's very exciting. So those will be people who come here to do things sort of linked to the farming or the environment or the food um, and will base themselves here. And we hope will then feel more closely connected and, and they will be eating the food that's uh, uh, cooked here by Henrietta um, based upon what is grown here. Um, and then just just to go back briefly to the, the, uh, the glamping pods, our glamping pods are uh, sort of small timber structures that are designed very much for all all year round people to sleep in and they're quite well uh, fitted out uh, and they're designed like a little six-legged spider um, and then we've got a purpose-built trailer that we use to move them around so we then move them around um, within the organic the, the lay alleys but also as the lay alleys move around so they are part of the organic or they will be part of the organic rotation just like any other crop <laughs> Um, and and the, the point of the point of designing them that way is that they they absolutely don't compromise the farming at all. We're not we're not in the position of turning productive land into a campsite or something like that, as some farmers might do. This is something which um, gives us another income stream, but also brings people to visit here and so on, um, which is entirely uh, uh, without any compromise to the farming. It's entirely an additional layer of activity. So um, we see all of those things as as working together. Um, partly to increase the sort of financial stability of the of the whole thing, but also to make it not just a farm producing food, but also a farm which has a a, a wider role in society, employing people and uh, educating them and so on. It's like we often hear about the eggmobiles and the mobile chicken hens, but actually you, you're doing tourism, um, <laughs> mobile infrastructure for tourism. It's it's good. It's, it really fits with the the um, rotation. I just wanted to ask something about the produce is, so if I understand correctly, you, you are thinking of that almost all your produce can be then directly uh, transformed and sold on site. Would you have any surplus? Um, uh, ask me in a year's time. Um, uh, okay. At the moment, we, we don't know how much of our produce uh, Henrietta will be able to use uh, and how much surplus there will be. Um, Uh, which because it depends partly in in terms of how um, uh, you know her, her operation is a sort of self-contained enterprise. It depends slightly on how big that grows, and it depends very much on the you know the nature of people coming here and how many people come here. I and mean, if we if we end up with people staying here at the moment, we're building six pods. Each of those could accommodate two or four people. We hope to have twelve pods in due course. If those pods were occupied by people staying here for even half the year, um, that would be an awful lot of food and. Um, Uh, I suspect she would indeed use all the produce that we produce, but um, mm. we're a long way from that yet. So at the moment, we still, at the moment, in the short term, uh, at least when it comes to when it comes to the fruit produce, we still sell that through uh, small retail outlets uh, in the area, and with the cereals and the lentils and so on, we sell those through a, a specialist uh, um, online retailer called Hodmadods, who are uh, based in this area but actually cover the whole of the UK. And the cereals, you you at the moment you have them milled somewhere else, and then you you, you no, still the, the the cereals. So the, the the wheat in particular, um, we mill on site, and then we supply we do supply hobmatods with some uh, some grain uh, because some of their customers want grain. But most of what we supply them with is flour um, that's milled on site in relatively small batches, so that uh, anybody who buys their hobmatods, their Wakelins uh, flour from hobmatods. Uh, it would have been uh, milled no more than uh, a matter of days or weeks beforehand. It won't have sat around getting stale. Um, and certainly the real uh, the real bread specialists are very keen to have fresh milled flour um, because of its additional flavor compared to uh, what you might call stale flour. Rightly so. Um, and so all of this is sold, um, could be sold locally as well to the to the local community. Yeah, yeah. So we had with our cherries, for example, we sold some cherries. We supplied some cherries to a, a local organic box scheme that operates uh, in Norwich, which is a, a small city nearby. Um, but we also sold uh, small quantities into the, the village shop, which is 10 minutes down the road. So um, different different uh, dimensions. And how many people does the farm um, hire at the moment? Um, that's a good question. Um, so uh, we have two guys who are um, part-time contractors who do the sort of um, the arable work, so the, the uh, wheat and the lentils and so on. 
Um, and their hours are very variable. I suspect it's probably an average of about uh, one uh, day a, a week through the year, but it's very variable. Um, we have another couple of guys who, again, are employed as and when who do the tree management. Um, uh, another woman has been dealing with our squash crop this year. Um, uh, the horticultural operations uh, will involve several people, and indeed one of them is going to be a community-supported agriculture scheme, so that will involve members of the community working on the site. But not, not all of those people are – well, none of those people are our employees. They, some of them are contractors. But um, mm -hmm. in some of them, I mean, like the, the uh, Henrietta, that's her own enterprise, and the uh, horticulture is going to be the enterprise of the, the two different groups of women who are doing it. Um, we will just be hosting them. Uh, so the intended arrangement with them is that, that they will have an area of land on which to grow their uh, food crops. Uh, and what we're discussing with them is that they, they won't pay us, or at least only pay us a nominal amount, um, but they will, in exchange for using the land, give us, let's say, 25% of what they produce um, for Henrietta to cook in, in her kitchen. So it will be more of a sort of collaborative arrangement rather than a commercial arrangement um, with them supplying her with food in exchange, for, with um, sorry, uh, ingredients in exchange for um, uh, uh, using the land. Um, so the number of people working here in, if you, in a year or two's time, I think there could be quite a lot of people working here involved in farming and food production, but they won't necessarily be, or they, they certainly won't be full time and they probably won't be our employees. But, but we're very keen to have a, a lot of people doing stuff on the land involving food and farming and the environment. Um, again, in contrast to the, the sort of uh, uh, methods that are used elsewhere, which involve you know, one guy and a, and a huge machine or whatever it might be. For sure. And it's going to become quite a, quite a hub uh, when all of these different uh, partnerships develop. Well, we hope so. We hope so. That's going to be really, really nice. And... Uh, the people that manage the trees uh, at the moment and in the future, that's yourself. And are you, are you working with somebody else as well? Um, well, I say um, we've got a couple of guys who are expert arboriculturalists who've been uh, doing stuff here for uh, 15 or so years. So they, they really, um, they get there carrying on and they're, they're making the management decisions uh, day to day. So one of the um, questions that uh, we usually ask our guests is about mistakes. Um, now, in your case, because you've come into into the the, the farm a bit later than than, than your parents, um, um, uh, it'll be interesting to see your perspective. I don't know if you'll be able to go so much, so so far back in time, but what are some of the 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 key mistakes that you that were done on the farm in terms of the tree lines, in terms of the design, and etc. That how would you do things differently in the farm? So, so um, uh, the very early, earliest tree lines, which are now the oldest trees, were planted 12 meters apart. Um, and I think that was too close together because as the trees and the undergrowth has got mature, you lose about three meters of width. So you end up with an active area of about nine meters. Um, so I think that was a mistake. Um, whereas the later lines are planted sort of 15 meters or 18 meters apart. And that's much more of a, a much more um, uh, sustainable balance. That's the first thing. The, the second thing is, um, uh, um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the way in which some of the timber trees have been managed. So, for example, the cherry trees, um, I, I think they were, um, uh, it would have been uh, better if there'd been an, an early decision to say that we either, we either want these as fruit or we want them as timber, uh, and then they'd be managed accordingly. Whereas I think it's been a bit of a compromise. So I think we haven't got the best of both worlds. Um, and then a third example, um, uh, so um, this is slightly away from the farming, but it's in terms of what we do with the produce. Um, as we've discussed, we, uh, the, the, the residue of the willow and hazel coppice is all chipped, and then the chipped uh, the biomass is used in a, a biomass boiler to produce uh, heating and hot water for the farmhouse. Um, now, that, that boiler was installed in the corner of the farmyard, um, and the, the way in which that's been installed uh, has proved not, or the sort of location of it within the within the complex uh, is not um, is not optimised really for the handling and the processing and the moving around of the of the uh, of chips. So I would say if you were if you were starting again, you'd put the boiler in a different place and in a place where you very specifically identified um, you know uh, uh, land or buildings in which you could store large quantities of wood chip and handle it very easily. Whereas um, we haven't got that because of our layout. So 
we do um, we do some un- what, what might be uh, uh, unnecessary handling of the wood chip, moving it around from place to place because of our layout compromises. So and that so represents quite a. Go on. No, keep, go for it. Go for it. Well, and, and that that um, that means um, you know more time, more machinery, um, and so on. So at the moment, uh, I have uh, when the when the chips were all chipped. Um, when was that now? About the end of March, uh, end of March into April. Um, we now have a huge uh, pile of wood chip uh, sitting in the in the field. Um, we are going to have to move that pile of wood chip before the rains start in a few weeks' time, because by uh, October or November we won't be able to drive a tractor onto that field because it'll be so wet. Um, so we have to move enough of that wood chip into an area of the farmyard uh, and then cover it up for the winter to feed, to keep the boiler going. Now, um, if we had a different layout, if, we, if it had been sort of planned in a different way, then we wouldn't be doing, we'd have, we'd have chipped it into its final destination um, uh, and it wouldn't have been moved around. So the, there's things like that, which um, because because uh, when my parents first uh, laid the whole place out, they didn't have a wood chip boiler that came with an afterthought, not an afterthought, but a later addition. Um, they perhaps didn't have the flexibility they might have had. But I would just say in answer to your you know, lessons learned questions, um, uh, because it all evolved, it didn't necessarily evolve in the most efficient way. We we suffered the same problems um, uh, at Mazzy Farm as well, um, where you know as things as evo- have evolved without necessarily the the exact planning from the beginning, which is very difficult to do. Then we we definitely felt the consequences of inefficient work and inefficient uh, spacing or placing of things. Yeah. Um, but continuing with the with the with the wood chips and heating the home, are you happy with the efficiency of that system of being able to use the wood chips to to heat your your home? Is that uh, is that the system you're happy with? Um, well, it's very nice to think that the hot water in my shower is um, comes from uh, uh, chips that come from timber that's grown in our fields. Um, uh, just as it's very nice to have a big uh, solar photovoltaic array and think that our electricity all comes from the sun. So, um, and obviously that's a big contributor, a big uh, sort of potential climate change benefit because uh, our fuel is a very short uh, cycle carbon capture. Um, so, so it's constantly being, you know, replenished in, in carbon terms. Um, uh, so that that's uh, all great in in those sorts of ways. Um, uh, it's compromised. It's not as good as it could be because we're doing unnecessary handling, um, and we haven't yet got it right in terms of the technology and the techniques for harvesting and chipping and so on. Those are all things we need to think about to refine. But the basic principle, I think, is 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 um, is great. And do you have any surplus left uh, from the boiler? Let's say, I mean, I, we can imagine a thousand uses for wood chips uh, from the no dig market garden to, um, of, to, for example, mulching trees. So in terms of volumes, are, do you have that resource as well? Um, uh, ask me in a, in a year or two. I say why I say that, because um, uh, when my uh, until a year ago, well, until three years ago, it's my my just my parents lived in this house. Um, uh, then my mum died in 2016 and then it was just my dad living in the house. So his needs for heating and hot water were relatively modest. Um, uh, if, if, so in that era, there was a, a lot of surplus wood chip. Um, as I mentioned, we're planning on having uh, a lot more people using the house and therefore a lot more showers and a lot more um, whatever. Uh, so it may be that we get through a lot more wood chip. Um, uh, I'm optimistic that we still have plenty, but we won't necessarily have a huge surplus. Um, but as I say, if you ask me that question in a year or two, I'll be able to give you a better answer. We'll definitely do that. You, you're not going to get rid of us so easily. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one question I had in mind, um, you know, listening earlier when you were talking about the strategy and opening up the farm, you know, to visitors and doing a hub, you mentioned that it was also part of economic viability. And that kind of made me think, um, Let's say I understand that it's probably like something that you want to do, and it seems very coherent um, to open up the farm and the project. But if you were to put apart the fact that you want to do it, do you think that you could run an agroforestry system based only on production uh, that would be economically viable? And the reason why I ask this is because it's such a crucial information for anyone kind of setting out uh, as we are and, you know, planting the trees and planting out. And I think it's great if you have um, some insights into that. Uh, bearing in mind that I know that the, the farm hasn't been run as a business, uh, as a conventional business for the last 25 years, 
but just kind of, you know, based on where you are now and your, your estimations and, and feeling about that? So, so um, uh, I think it could be. Um, I think um, we have a number of challenges, including the, the things I described to you as mistakes, which mean that we have higher costs than we might need otherwise have. I think also, um, as I described to you, we, we're reliant on sort of contractors and so on, and that's a relatively expensive way of doing things for some of those activities. So if we were the, doing the farming directly ourselves, so we didn't have labour costs, that would be um, a different economics. Um, uh, I think you just choose your crops carefully. And I think, again, we have issues about the layout. So there are areas where um, we have very big headlands of, of grass and so on, uh, which are great for biodiversity uh, and so on, but not so good in terms of the cropping area. So uh, I think you could, if you were designing the system from scratch, you could design it differently and operate it differently to make it much more sustainable, even in its own terms. Um, and particularly if you included things like intensive horticulture, which are much more financially productive, um, then I think that would be the case. Um, uh, but from where we are, um, I think we can certainly make it much more financially sustainable than it has been. Whether it's on, on this relatively small farm area, it would be completely viable without any subsidies uh, as a self-standing commercial proposition, just as uh, farming uh, is, is harder to say. Um, uh, but I think equally, if you look across the hedge and look at the farm next door, where they're growing uh, 100 hectares at the moment of beans in a completely ordinary, conventional, uh, chemically assisted way. Um, I don't think they're making much money in growing beans either. I think they are reliant on the subsidies as well. So um, I think sometimes the comparisons are, um, need to be uh, carefully framed. I couldn't agree more because you know we often have conversations with people and then you kind of have to remind that we're not comparing um, you know, a, a system that works economically uh, which would be the conventional one to alternatives. We're, we're comparing a system that doesn't work economically and, and relies on subsidies and, and still where farmers struggle to make an income. So thanks for reminding us the, the right comparison. I had a, um, another question, um, which is, you know, if you look at the, the farmers around you and um, that agricultural desert and, you know, and you compare it to what's happening in your land, what do you think is the biggest barrier or the biggest limitation for um, other farmers to adopt agroforestry systems? Um, well, I think there's a, uh, I suppose there's a big uh, lack of understanding and a big um, sort of information deficit. Um, uh, I also think that, uh, I mean, so occasionally, well, not occasionally, quite often we get um, contacted by farmers who are interested in converting to some agroforestry. Um, I mean, I, it's an interesting phenomenon. I've, I've had contact um, several times in the last few months from um, sort of young, I mean, I say young people, so people, let's say, in their, probably in their, in their 30s, who are the, the sons and daughters of the existing older farmers. And as the, as the children are looking to inherit their farms or whatever, they are interested in um, changing the methods. So um, I've had a number of contacts from those kinds of people. Um, uh, and one of the things that, that uh, so that's great to sort of hear that. Um, one of the things I think, one of the challenges I think they face is that when they, if they were to introduce an, or, an, an agroforestry system into a field, then obviously for the first few years, uh, the tree lines are purely a detriment because they're compromising your, uh, your arable crop, but they're not yet giving you any return in terms of fruit or nuts or timber or anything like that. So you have to have a much longer term perspective whether it's longer term climate change perspective sort of as a, as a big picture perspective or whether it's simply your own economics and farming you you have to have a you have to be in it for the long game because you've got a few years at least of where you're you have a field of wheat or whatever it might be with with um uh, saplings in and that's that's um that must look quite frustrating for a while so obviously we have the advantage that that the wakeland site has long since grown through those early years but i suspect that's a that's a significant barrier for people i can imagine and now you can when you respond to them you can link uh, our uh, our podcast <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely absolutely hopefully it, i don't know I, i'm an, i'm only joking but i mean hopefully um that's what we can continue to explore in the in the next episodes and and really go into those practical challenges and obstacles because they're actually more interesting to us than you know repeating again and again how amazing agroforestry is um Good. but you yeah. know maybe that's when um when um 
maybe some smart subsidies, or I don't know if it's some alternative financing methods, but there's, it's true that there's, there's a lot of innovation required beyond what's going on in the field to enable a large-scale transition of agroforestry. I'm sure that's all, all entirely correct, yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll, of course, link um, everything to do with the, uh, the farm and your website and, and social media, and um, would encourage anyone to just go and see these beautiful pictures at the very least, of uh, beautiful 25-year-old trees uh, in the middle of the English countryside. It's quite a sight. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the episode with David. We really hope that you enjoyed it. All the links are below to his website and his social media and also to ours where you can get lots more information. And as always, we are looking forward to hearing your feedback and to have your questions as well. We want to get in touch with you and we want you to get in touch with us. So please don't hesitate to go on our website and uh, get in and contact us through our different uh, contact forms or just send us an email. So thank you so much and we will see you next time. <laughs>